0: Last time we were together in 1 Peter, we looked at the idea, really starting in about verse 18, of kind of how slaves, how servants respond to their masters, and and the way Peter broke it out, there's really two groups. There's one who, you do everything that your master tells you to do, he's a good guy, things go well for you, and and Peter says, good. There are others that they do everything they're supposed to do, but yet they suffer. Yet they suffer. They suffer. And the way that Peter described this, they find themselves suffering not because they have this this heavy-handed authoritarian over them, but they find themselves suffering in some sense because what they're doing is standing up for the gospel. And so when they find themselves being given a directive, which is directly in contradiction with the gospel, they disobey and they suffer. They disobey and they suffer. And Peter's word to them in this suffering, in this righteous suffering, Is that it's good. Look there at the end of verse 20. He says, but if when you do good, he's talking about when you do good for the gospel and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of the Lord. And so we recognize that our passage is tied to this. And so Peter's talking about, he says, whenever you do good and you suffer for it, good recognizing our goodness to the gospel, our submission to it, and we suffer for it, this is a good thing for you. It's a gracious thing for you. How many people feel like they just love and are looking forward to some suffering this next week? Anybody? We have anybody in here who would raise their hand and be like, this last week was kind of boring. Like nothing really went on, the wife and I got along, the kids obeyed, my boss was more pleasant than normal, he was on vacation, right? And so we recognize that not many of us find ourselves zealous for suffering. But as Christians, let me just tell you this, there is no reasonable expectation for you that you might escape suffering. There is no reasonable expectation for the Christian to be able to escape suffering. Suffering is part and parcel for what it is to be a Christian. And what we see here is that Jesus has laid down for us this path, this life, that we are to enjoin ourselves to him and walk through. Look how he opens this passage. Peter writes, it says, for to this you have been called. Suffering, suffering. I was talking to Joel Bench about this earlier this week, and he said, you're going to ruin our, our hook. You're going to ruin our lure. I mean, so many people that say, hey, do you want to be a Christian? Everything is so much better here. The grass is greener, the water is pure. the beer, what? And so they say, everything's so much better here on this side, and don't ruin our lure, don't ruin our hitch. And say, I'm sorry. I mean, as we look at this, it's just an impossibility. Of course, Joel knew that. Peter writes, he says, for to this you've been called. Well, what is it? We recognize it is doing good in the midst of suffering. As Christians, we're called to emulate, to display, to manifest the gospel even in the midst of suffering. And can I tell you, by all indicators, this is where we're headed. By all indicators, this is where we're headed. If you are true to what it is to be a Christian, to walk in faith, then there is no reasonable expectation for you to think that you might avoid suffering. This is where we are all headed together. But there's good news in this. We don't walk alone. We're not walking into uncharted territory. We're not walking into a course of life that's not been laid down ahead of us. What we read in continuing this passage is, is because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so we begin to read this and internalize this, and of course, if you've been in church any length of time, then you've heard that Jesus suffered and died for you, that he took on your sins, and that he died for you, and that God raised him from the dead, and then he sits at the right hand of God. And so this is just kind of this thing that we know and we assume. But what Peter's asking us to do is to begin to internalize this, begin to think about it, and and really understand all the various ways that Jesus suffered for you. All the various ways that he endured great difficulty for you. And so he says here in the beginning thing is you are called to walk in the suffering of Jesus. What does he say? He says, because Christ also suffered for you. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Oftentimes, whether it be in our our extension of the gospel, explaining it to others, or just kind of reading in our daily Bible reading, we notionally understand what it is that Christ suffered for us, kind of for humanity. Humanity. But when we begin to move beyond just kind of this mass application to internal heart recognition and meditation, think about this truth and be overwhelmed by it. Jesus Christ suffered for you. He suffered for you. He suffered for you in your hard heartedness, He suffered for you in your waywardness, He suffered for you in your complete indifference. He suffered for you in the midst of your pursuit of pornography or alcohol or adultery, satisfying self. He suffered for you in the midst of every wayward sin your heart has ever been inclined to follow. In the midst of that, we begin to recognize the path that he set for us and the tremendous love that he has for those who receive his sacrifice and become sanctified by the Holy Spirit. For this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Look what it says next, leaving you an example. Now this is one of the cases, this is one of the times when the English language just begins to kind of pale in comparison with what we're able to see in the original text. And so captivated within this word example is this incredibly robust uh, path guide. Does anybody remember when you were learning to write Maybe you're learning to write cursive when you're in school, and your teacher brought out this, this book. It's, maybe your teacher referred to it as the book of pain. As a kid, this is certainly what I remembered it as. I have, I have terrible penmanship. You can ask anybody that's ever read a note I've written. Terrible penmanship. But this book purports that everybody will write the exact same way. And I go out of my way never to write like that Again. And so the way that it is, it's hard line on the bottom, hard line on top, dash line across the middle, right? You remember this book, it's all coming back to you now, like meatloaf. And so you find yourself going through this and it's got the A and it's up, down, over, across. Up, down, over, across. Everybody say up, down, over, across. (laughs) I have no idea if that's how you write an A, but now you know, right? And so we do this until you've got the hand cramps and you're like, come back to life! And you're slapping it, and you're trying, and you're like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm like, I'm like 30 or 40 A's in, I don't even want to begin the B, and that Q, who knew, it's like a two, right? Who came up with that? It's like they're going through the alphabet, and they said, we don't know what to put next. Somebody said, two is my favorite number. Yes, put a loopy two for the capital. Let's do this, no one will ever be confused. Unless they're adding, in which case, what in the world? It's probably where algebra came in. Look, it's got, a, it's got a letter in there. No, 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 that stands for something. Okay, let's go for that. And so what we recognize is that Christ's life, in a very real sense, has become this guidebook, this example. And when we study his word, when we spend time with other believers and see the way that he's leading them, when we spend time in prayer with them, our lives, in a very real sense, are being changed and transformed. Just like when we worked through that book and it was up, down, over, and across. And so Christian, this is what God has given you in his word. This is what God has given you by the Holy Spirit and dwelling in your heart. He is transforming you so that you might follow in his example. So that your life would increasingly begin to represent uh, what he would, would do, what he would choose. So that your life would increasingly manifest Christ. So in essence, over the course of our life, as we observe Jesus, as we live in fellowship with him, as we study his word, our lives are being transformed and made into his likeness and not our own. Amen? We recognize in that likeness, we are walking in his suffering. He suffered for you. So that he might leave for us an example. And look at this next deal. So that we might follow in his steps. You read through the accounts of the gospel and you recognize that Jesus encountered tremendous adversity. Both those in his internal group, both those within the religious system, which he came to save, and then people outside this from the government authorities. He encountered tremendous difficulty, tremendous adversity. But all along the way, if we focus on his life, focus on on the gospels kind of how we see jesus our understanding and our unpacking of this within the letters when the old testament says what he's going to do and the new testament says what he did we begin to see the steps that he took and what he's calling us to do is to walk in those steps and so we find ourselves in the midst of making decisions of how will i respond to this what is this going to look like when in a very real sense we're not saying what would jesus do we're saying what did G- what did jesus do right And so to do this, we have to be a student, we have to be a student of his word, we have to be a people of his word. And as we study God's word, we begin to see that our hearts are completely transformed. So we see less and less of Jason, less and less of Mary, less and less of Peter, less and less of Ben, and more and more of Jesus in our lives. And that's what people begin to observe. But even in their observation of that, recognize that being conformed to the image of Jesus is not an escape approach for avoiding suffering. Even being conformed to the image and the likeness of Jesus is not an escape approach for avoiding suffering. In John 15, 20, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, told them this word. He said, you remember what I've taught you. Now recognize this. A servant is not above his master. So he's calling us to understand where we fall in line with this. And he said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. To be a Christian is to have no reasonable expectation that we will avoid suffering. We need to quit trying to go through our lives, trying to like like we're risk averse, like we're trying to avoid suffering. And so we choose friendships, we choose relationships where there's no possibility of suffering. It's like we walk into a room with twelve people and be like, look, I think Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Everybody with me on this side, we can be friends. Everybody opposed to me on that side. Don't want to offend you. I'm just gonna stay way over here away from you. It's like this line of demarcation of conversations and friendships we don't want to cross. Now traditionally, within the South, there are two conversations you don't have with people. We don't discuss two topics, anybody know what they are? We don't discuss politics and religion. And now we find ourselves with Trump and Hillary, the heading this heading this race, and we find ourselves compelled to engage in politics, right? I mean, everybody's back of their cars is blistered with bumper stickers. And so it's from secede, to Green Party, to Libertarian, to I got guns, you touch my car, i shoot you. I'm not sure how that works, I'm not sure how that works in this political process, but I'm fairly certain that it is. It had a donkey and and an elephant on there. The guy had ivory in the back of his truck. I don't know what that's trying to communicate. But we recognized that for for too long, we kind of held back, and so we wanted to have polite conversations, civil discourse with people. So we didn't talk about politics. We didn't talk about what the gospel would say to us about politics. We certainly didn't share with people that disagreed with us about our own particular political opinion. And we didn't want to talk about religion because we didn't want to offend anybody. Man, that's what church is for on Sunday morning. I go to church and I get all the God talk I want. I go to church on Wednesday night or I'm in a small group. I get all the God talk I want. I have a small Bible study that meets in my house with all the blinds shut and the door closed and the lights off so that people don't even come by on Halloween, right? Because I don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to be in awkward conversations, we don't want to suffer. You don't want people to know that you worship a risen Lord, that you actually believe that a man came from heaven, God's son, that he dwelled in flesh, in perfect humanity, and perfect divinity, that he died, and that you actually believe that he came back to life and that his rising from the dead, your sins are wiped out. We don't want the awkwardness. We don't want the suffering that comes from telling people. I believe that God raises people from the dead. It's an awkward awkward start at Subway. They're like, "You want white or wheat?" And they're like, "Let me just get this out. God raises people from the dead. Wheat, <laughs> uh, foot, six, six inch foot long. I'm sorry. What now?" And so it's like we're, we're not well versed in this conversation because we're, because we're completely risk averse. We're opposed to suffering. But what we recognize in this is for the Christian, there is no reasonable expectation that we'll avoid suffering. To be a Christian is to be identifying with Jesus. To be identifying with Jesus, as we read about here in 1 Peter, is that we would follow in his steps. Do you want to follow Jesus? Then you've got to walk in his steps. If we want to follow ourselves, it dictates the mandates and the direction of this world, then we can do whatever the heck we want to do. But if you want to follow Jesus, there's only one choice for you, and that's following in his steps. Look what we see here. Peter going on begins, begins to give us this picture so that we understand what it means that he suffered for us, so that we understand what it means that he endured for us. And this is all out of Isaiah 53, if you want to read through this a little bit later today. He begins, he says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now Peter's not trying to primarily paint a picture of what it means that Jesus is perfectly and sinless, although these things are true. These things are true. But what he's trying to give us a picture is much like what he was talking about with the servant, that Jesus' suffering wasn't the result of him sinning. Jesus' suffering wasn't the result of his sinning, of him sinning. So recognize that some of us suffer because we sin. You steal, you lie. You, at your heart, are an awful person. Maybe this is true of you, and so you suffer on the basis of this. This is a consequence. This is not real suffering. This is a consequence. Do you understand the difference? But when it comes to Jesus, he says that he did not commit any sin. Jesus was totally perfect. There is no reason for him to suffer outside the salvation of humanity. Do you understand this? So, when we find ourselves walking in in his steps, following the course that Jesus set for us, he is calling us in the same approach that there would be no sin found in us. Anybody in here free from sin this week? Last three minutes. There we go. Got last three minutes. There we go. There we go. (laughs) Amen. Hallelujah. Let's just call it. It's impossible, right? can never keep from sinning. Jesus sets this model. He allows us to be free from the stain of sin, free from death, so that we might experience eternity with God. But what we find in this is that Jesus wasn't posing. He wasn't posturing. It says no deceit was found in his mouth. So Jesus wasn't just putting on where everybody found him in the best possible scenario, the best possible day. So Jesus did not go to the disciples and say, I'm about to lose it. You gotta get them out of here. I'm gonna go into the room and just let go. These people are terrible. Are you kidding me? What's wrong with them? Like Jesus did not have a bad day in that vein. There was no deceit found in him. Some of us were very good at being good for an hour and a half, two hours at a time. That's why you don't go to lunch with anybody from church, right? are like, oh my goodness, is gone. If I go to lunch with these people, oh man, I just don't think I can handle it for another 40, 30 or 45 minutes. And if the server's slow, I'm just going to explode all over them. What we recognize in this is that Jesus, there's no deceit found in his mouth. There's no falsehood found in his mouth. He's calling us to walk in the steps that he laid down before us. Look, look at this next deal. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus encountered tremendous difficulty. Over the course of his ministry, he was, he was classically misunderstood. They said that Jesus was a drunkard and a glutton. Man spent his time with prostitutes. He spent his time with, with the ever-loved and enduring tax collectors. He spent his time with those that we look about in our community and say, there's no worth, there's no real value in them. And so maybe for you, you look out at our community, you look at it at Hunt County and Greenville and maybe for you, you assign this to the people that are addicted to meth. Maybe for you, in your mind, you, you, you assign this to the people that are homeless, the people you say, why are they homeless? Why don't they just go get a job? Why don't they just do something? Why don't they do something with themselves? I wish they would do something with themselves so I could quit paying taxes and supporting them. We recognize, folks, that this is the lion's share of who Jesus spent time with, those that were marginalized, those that were cast off. If we're going to walk in his steps, then we've got to find ourselves invested in these people's lives too, amen? If we're going to find ourselves following the steps of Jesus, then we got to find ourselves engaged with people that are likely going to revile us, despise us, and not want anything to do with us. And this is getting easier and easier every day. It's getting easier and easier every day. seems like every time we turn around, there's a new term that we have to know, not to offend somebody. And so before you engage in a conversation, you just want to submit a questionnaire to somebody and say, please check all that apply or don't apply so I can know how to address you. Sir, ma'am, or non-binary. So we recognize that to be engaged in the gospel is to find ourselves in the midst of being alienated and cast off. It's to find ourselves in the midst of being marginalized. It's to find ourselves in the midst of, of being disinvited. Not cared for, spoken against. And this is good for us said when he was reviled, he did not revile in a turn. So he gives us an indication that when you are blasted and lit up for what it is to believe in Jesus, to be a follower of his, do you know what your posture is? Do you know what your response is? It's completely different than what's brought to you. Someone, someone comes to you and they are blowing you up for the gospel, destroying you on, on Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is. Your response to them is graciousness, it is love, it is compassion, and it is mercy, and it is nothing else. Do you understand me? Does this mean you just roll over and play dead and say, you just go be whoever you want to be, non-binary person, individual, sentient being? No. You continue to put forth this gospel ethic. Why? Why? Because you recognize the greatest hope for all those who support you and deride you is only ever found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it has everything to say about their present and ultimately everything to say about their future. Amen? It says when he reviled, he didn't revile. What we see is this, the tense structure of this is over and over and over again. Jesus never had this moment where he just blasted them for their approach to him. And then think about this next deal. It says, when he suffered, he didn't threaten. There are many of us in this room that when we suffer, we don't threaten. You work for a large corporation, you get fired for whatever reason. You're displaying the gospel somehow, you're abiding by the company's regulations and policies, but somehow you get fired for your faith. They turn around, they fire you. And so you have this choice to make. Do you file a, a wrongful termination suit? And in some of the cases, the corporations so large, you recognize you're never gonna win. Your lawyer may assure you a victory, but chances are you're probably never gonna win. It's gonna be tied up in litigation. That lawyer's the only one that's making money off anybody. And so you just, you just let it go. And in that case, you say, look, I didn't threaten. I didn't threaten. Your threatening is almost always directly in line with your ability to overcome. And so what we recognize here in Jesus, it says he was suffering, but he did not threaten. Jesus had every ability to overcome. Do you understand this? So in Jesus, we see the picture of one who is all powerful, able to overcome any adversity, any difficulty, but even in the midst of this, even in the midst of this difficulty, he didn't play the trump card. Can you imagine having this? Like I remember playing games uh, when I was younger, my brother hated it. Anytime I got a Trump card, it's like I get it and I'd lay it. I get it and I'd lay it. I just couldn't help it. So anytime I found myself with the ability to kind of overcome and to win victory, it was like I get it and I just go, <laughs> <laughs> He's six years older than me. He hated that. He hated that. He's like, Dad, why does he keep it on the trump card? I'm like <laughs> That's my laugh. I don't know. <laughs> Deal with it. But we find ourselves, if we want to follow in the model of Jesus, it's not finding those opportunities and occasions when we don't have the ability to overcome, but it's in a very real sense, finding those opportunities and chances when we absolutely could overcome. We could put people in their place, we could show them what's what, we could make things right, at least right in our own mind, in that moment. We follow in line with the humility of Jesus, and what do we do? We let them have the appearance of victory. We are loving. We are compassionate. We are kind. We are gracious. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. You might say to yourself, I can't be a pacifist. I can't just roll over and die. It's not rolling over. This is going to take such an incredible amount of strength on your part and on my part. That in the midst of suffering, that we would return back to those that bring suffering to us, goodness, kindness, the gospel of Jesus Christ suffered or served up to them. That our suffering may be able to produce in somebody's life, saving faith, such an amazing thing that God would entrust us. He calls us to walk in this line, But how? Look here, the last part of 23. We read that when he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But what does he do? It says, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Now, I've heard people say, it's okay, they're gonna get their just desert someday, right? Almost to say, ha, someday they're gonna be in hell and they're gonna be sorry they cut me off in traffic someday they're going to be in hell and they're just going to feel so bad that they cut in front of me uh, in this line or that line or they said this thing to me or they, they unfriended me on Facebook or whatever the heck people do. Recognize when somebody's in hell, they suffer for all eternity. That's never something we should rejoice in. That'd be the first thing I'd say. What he's talking about in this isn't Jesus saying, oh man, when they called me a drunkard and a glutton and when they beat me and when they mocked me and when they hit me in the head and spit on me and called me king of the Jews and when they ripped my flesh from my body and when they dressed me up in purple and bowed down mocking me. What it's not saying is that in that moment he said they're gonna get what's coming to them. But in that moment, he fully gave himself over to entrusting himself to God. This is what he's describing. He describes God as the one who judges justly. The justice of God is perfect. The love of God is perfect. And the best place for a Christian to be, the only place for a Christian to be in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, is giving ourselves over fully to him. I'm praying to him, God, give me strength. God, help me endure. God, help me to love. God, help me to forgive. This is what it's calling us to. We're gonna be misunderstood. We're gonna be unappreciated. You're gonna go to someone and you're gonna present the gospel and it's the most gracious, winsome, likable, amazing thing anyone has ever heard. In fact, all the angels in heaven are gonna be going, well done, well done. Never have we heard a better gospel demonstration, illustration, thank you good and faithful witness. And you know what you're gonna get in return? Derision, hatred, laughter, cussed out, punched out, hatred. What is our posture? We entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. So Peter runs through this, and he's just blowing our minds. He says, look, he suffered for you. This is what it was like for him to suffer for you. And then he comes through it in verse 24. He reminds us again, he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus didn't just suffer from you the slings and arrows of people's words. You know, the the sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will always scar me deeply. And so he's not just encountering this thing and some of you got that, okay, You know, talk fast. People have to listen quicker. And so what he says in this, he says, look, don't just understand the fact that he suffered for you this way over the course of his life, but he bore our sins on his body, on the tree. So in a very real sense, the nails through Jesus' wrists, through his ankles, the crown of thorns on his head, the pressure on his lungs filling up with water, all of these things are manifestations of our sin. All of these things are manifestations of our sin. He says, he bore on his body our sins. So we begin to think about our character. We begin to think about our behavior. We begin to think about the words we use, the attitudes we have towards people we disagree with. We begin to think about all the wayward things we've done and said and the activities we've been engaged with. What does it produce in us? What does it produce in us? Contrition. Sadness conviction and an amazing love for the Savior recognize the love of Jesus is manifested in some sense in the suffering he endured on our behalf he bore he wore he was dressed in our sins all the beating the scourging the mocking the crown of thorns twisted and brambled and shoved on his head the immense pain he endured was what it was a manifestation of our sins, your sins and mine. It's not your wife, it's not your neighbor, it's not your kids, friend, they are your sins. He bore your sins. He bore your sins. And we find out here there's a purpose to it. It says he bore our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then Peter summarily says it this way, by his wounds you've been healed. The wounds of Jesus aren't primarily there for this moral influence deal. You're like, man, Jesus really died for me. He did me a solid. It's so encouraging that somebody sacrificed themselves for me. So I'm just going to be a really good person to help him back, to pay him back for the goodness he afforded me on the cross of Calvary. What he says in this is that he bore your punishment. To where God is a just God and he has to punish sin. So God poured out his wrath on the person of Jesus and he did that on the cross of Calvary. And so he did this in line with what Paul says in Romans 6 and what Peter says here. So that you might be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. God did this so your life would be transformed, not so that you learn better behavior. Do you understand the difference there? He did this so your life would be transformed, so that you would surrender your life to Jesus Christ, so that you would be dead to sin, so that sin would no longer be Lord and master over your life. If, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you don't believe he is the son of God come in the flesh, who died for you, who bore the wrath of God for you, who took on sin and death for you, and who rose and overcome the grave. If you do not believe this, if you do not believe this, there's no answer for your sin. If you do not believe this, then in your life today, even as good as you ever hoped to be, and as all the grandmothers in the world would say that you actually are, you're dead in sin. Sin is reigning in your body. Sin is reigning in your life. And there is only death in your life. This is what Peter's telling us. But for the Christian, the one who entrusts themselves to Jesus, the one who submit themselves to him, who humbly beg of him to come and to extend forgiveness to them, to the Christian, this is what he says, that you may be dead to sin and you may live to righteousness. We are no longer slaves to sin, amen, but we are slaves to God and righteousness. Our new course, our new path is lived for his good pleasure, amen? Come on now. Amen? He says, by your wounds, by his wounds have you been healed. It's the wounding of Jesus that heals humanity. You may think it overkill, you may think it unfair, but in the cosmic wisdom of God, the eternal wisdom of God, this is how he sought fit to return wayward humanity to himself. The son suffered and died for you. He suffered and died for you. And for the Christian, this is what he's calling you to, to walk in each step that Jesus laid down before you. It's a call to recognize suffering, to entrust yourself to the one who judges righteously, justly, and to walk in the course that Jesus sets down before you. Look what he says in verse 25, and we'll wrap this up. He paints this this picture. He paints this picture of humanity prior to coming to faith, and he says we're all straying like sheep. In essence, we're all kind of doing whatever we want. We're pursuing all these different courses that satisfy ourselves, and, and we're doing all of these things that, that just really please us. But he says, "But have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls." Peter is bringing in a couple of different a, a couple of different pictures here. Hear these words from Ezekiel thirty-four. Ezekiel thirty-four verses 11 through 13, it says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them from out of the people and gather them from the far countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. And by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. In John 10, Jesus reflecting on this in verse 11 said these words of himself. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What we recognize in suffering is that we follow the course set before us by Jesus. And the only reason we are able to walk the road of suffering is because Jesus has brought and delivered us. Bought and delivered and purchased us he owns us we are his sheep and the sheep follow the good shepherd the course that Jesus has for us to walk is not a course which is risk averse because it's not a course where we seek to avoid suffering but is a course where we graciously extend the gospel in all the various facets of our lives in our workplace in our home and in the marketplace every place that Jesus calls you to, you graciously manifest the gospel and we recognize that we are increasingly headed towards a time when we will suffer. But there is goodness in our suffering. There is goodness in God in the midst of it. And he calls us to be a people who model ourselves after him and follow him each and every step. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness in the person of Jesus Christ. I confess that I am overwhelmed and perplexed that Jesus would suffer thus for me. I know my heart, I know its wickedness, its waywardness. So, God, I thank you for your goodness, for your compassion, for your love, and for your mercy. God, I can think of a myriad of ways why I am undeserving of your love. But yet in the blood of Jesus, his cross, your love finds its way to me. And so I am forgiven, I am redeemed, I am bought, paid for, and purchased by the blood of the Lamb, by Jesus Christ, the one who bore my sins on the tree. So God, as we move into this time of application, I pray that your spirit will be making truth find its way to our hearts, and that you'd be calling us to move in line with the application of this passage. That our lives will be found in submission to you. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.